Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back uh, to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show for making this show economically viable. They are Arroway Energy, Aravista Gold, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, uh, and I'm forgetting a couple of others, uh, Riverside uh, Resources and uh, Northern Freegal. Those are the other ones. Our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. Well, when we went to uh, when we went to break, uh, there's so many more things we want to talk about. One of the things I'd like to ask you, Ian, about uh, you and uh, you've been on this show along with uh, Robert Prechter in the past, and I know uh, that you believe that sort of year 2000 was sort of the start of the Kondratiev winter, or as you call it, uh, the the great contraction. Uh, and yet, you know, as we look at prices here in the United States, it's true that housing prices did uh, suffer a, a very uh, strong decline. I would argue they would have gone down a lot more had it not been for all kinds of intervention and by the government to try to hold them up. But uh, but generally speaking, prices have been on the rise. For the, uh, those of us, uh, those middle class folks are, are finding that our uh, percentage of our income that we have to spend on food and energy, health care, um, Certainly, education. Those are those are those costs are rising very dramatically, and they're squeezing the middle class uh, very very significantly. So, you know, we're looking at a period now about 12 years since the since the uh, dot com bubble collapsed, and uh, and you believed that the Kondratiev winter was underway. Uh, do you? So, but you still believe in this deflationary scenario, and uh, how long is it going to take before we actually see, in your view? see prices across the board start to decline? Well, Jay, um, you know, the Fed is doing effectively exactly what the Fed tried to do following uh, the crash of 29. And, and you know, when we had the, the stock market peak in 2000 and then the subsequent uh, crash into 2002, Alan Greenspan, you know, 
inflated the money supply quite dramatically and um, brought down interest rates from 6 to 1% over that period of time. So that he, in fact, what we had was we had a, a huge spike in the, in, you know, in real estate prices as everyone ran into real estate and, again, a recovery in the stock market. And then when we had the crash from 2007 to 2009, again in the stock market, Ben Bernanke followed Alan Greenspan's um, kind of direction, brought interest rates again down from 6 to 0% effectively, flooded the banks with money. And so all what's happening is these quantitative easings, all this money that's being made, made available into the banking system is, in my opinion, going into the speculation, and particularly into speculation in the stock market. And I think the Fed wants that speculation in the stock market. They feel that it's very important that stock prices uh, remain high because they see that as the, the, the sort of the measure of, of wealth of, of the American people. So, uh, and I've got hundreds of quotes from Bernanke and Greenspan basically stating that that is what they're effectively trying to do. So we've got a, a speculation, and that speculation is through the banks isn't entirely into the stock market. It's going into all areas, so it's going into the commodity markets as well. So at this time, this big, huge amounts of money that are being made, made available to the banking system have really been made available to speculate in all sorts of mediums. Um, eventually, you know, I'm of the opinion that the stock market has to reflect the reality of the economy. And as you know, I'm of the opinion that we're going into a massive deflationary depression similar to the 30s, but effectively far worse. Now, in the 30s, what you want to see is that the U.S. economy was compressed by 45% between 1929 and 1933. Unemployment reached 25%. Now, today, the unemployment rate, according to the official figures of the United States, is something just less than 8%, or, sorry, it's just less than 9%, but the numbers that uh, John Williams puts out is something closer to 16% uh, unemployment in the United States. So, And if you go into countries that are already facing these massive debt problems, such as Greece and Spain and so on, you're seeing unemployment at 25% and a huge compression that's occurring in the economy. Why is the U.S. immune to what is happening elsewhere because of the massive debt buildup that's occurred in the United States and elsewhere in the world, but particularly now we're talking about the U.S.? Why do, someone, you know, why do people think that somehow they can buy their way out of this? They can't. The debt is overwhelming the effect of the, of the economy to function uh, properly. And by, just by creating more debt doesn't get the economy get write it again. It just can't happen. That debt has to be washed out of the system. Well, I don't think that Larry would necessarily believe that we are going to be able to buy our way out of the system, would you, Larry? Uh, I, I think that, you know, you don't see any happy ending to this to this uh, horrific situation we're in. Uh, you just don't see it going the way Ian sees it going, into a, a hyper, uh, into a deflationary depression. So maybe you could answer, uh, answer Ian's uh, view on that. I think Ian has this business about the debt being unsustainable, correct. Uh -huh. However, um, the way the system is set up is there are a couple of uh, entities that are not being allowed to default on debt. Those are the two big-to-fail entities.
countries, and it's not just in the United States, it's in Europe as well. Uh, China, uh, all the banks are government, all the big banks are government banks. So, I mean, for a big bank in China to fail means that the government would have to fail. It's just silly. And the way the banks don't fail is that they keep getting what they call uh, 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 infusions. I don't know what the hell they call it. It's really wealth transfer. Mm-hmm. And they create money out of nothing, and they give it to the banks. Banks issue bonds or whatever, or, or however they want to do the double-entry bookkeeping. But the net result is all over the world, there are no exceptions. Um, uh, they're creating money out of nothing. They've made an official policy to depreciate the currency. And in addition to which, there is absolutely no constituency anywhere for deflation. No, there is no country that is going to, to- tolerate deflation. And so uh, the net result is, and they have the easy way to, to prevent that, because all the money is created out of nothing. And, um, and that's the history of the world. So when Marco Polo went to China uh, in the middle of the 13th century, he noticed that the Chinese emperors had become fabulously rich, issuing paper money. It goes back to Europe. The Europeans were disbelieving. But every instance where we had irredeemable paper ticket money, the purchasing power has always gone to zero. And the reason for that is that there always comes a time when the temptation to the monetary authorities to issue more money is just so overwhelming they cannot resist the temptation. And the well, Catholic line, I mean, last, last, last line, Jay, and the Catholic Church has a line for this, and the Catholic Church has this exactly right, and the line is, in the face of temptation, reason succumbs. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's, that's the nature of human beings, I suppose. That's, that's correct. But, Larry, how would this be different now? Uh, didn't we have too big to fail institutions in the 1930s? Weren't the banks protected then as well? No, as a matter of fact, the banks did fail. Something like 50% of the banks uh, failed, and by the time Roosevelt uh, declared the bank holiday, another 40% had closed. So only 10% of the banks were left. Uh, but, but the big, big guys banks, survived. Very, very big banks, uh, they had not leveraged up as much as the small banks, but really it was a major banking failure. And the reason that Roosevelt, uh, conf- uh, first he, uh, on the first day in office, uh, March 5th, he froze all transactions in gold, and subsequently they seized the gold. And the reason for that is that all of the paper money being issued in those days was redeemable on demand in gold, and they didn't have enough gold to go around, which is what Roosevelt explained in really disingenuous terms on his first fireside chat, which was on March 12, 1933. Well, Larry, so, you get... You, you're raising an issue that I want to I want to ask both of you about a little later, and that is, uh, you know, the confiscation issue of gold. But I want to hold that thought for now, uh, and, and get to that a little later. Uh, Ian, um, what do you what do you say to uh, what do you say to Larry with respect to his view that uh, that they just you know they're not going to let these big guys fail, and so there's no constituency for for deflation. Not any, not any place on the planet. Uh, what, what was that, Larry? There's, there is no constituency any place on the planet for deflation. There is, there is no, nobody talking about, let's wash out the bad debt. Well, I think uh, whether there is a, a constituency for it or not, I believe, Ian, you think you believe it's going to happen. Well, uh, go I ahead. Do, Jay, because, you know, um, and I've written several times about this, the, and I, you know, I haven't gone as far back as the Chinese paper money system, but... You know, we've got two really good, and I've, I've talked about these before, and I'm sure on your show too, Jay, but we've got two reasonably uh, recent paper money experiences, which uh, are, are our guide to 
what happens. And effectively, the first was the John Law paper money scheme in 1720, um, you know, which fueled a massive uh, speculation in in the Mississippi stock bubble. And and the second was the Assignat, the French Revolutionary paper money scheme, um, which uh, and in both cases, as of, as paper money started to sort of uh, become discredited and people started to distrust paper money, uh, the government, the French government at that time, in both cases, John Laws and the Assignat period, printed even more and more of it to try and get the thing rejig the bubble. And that's really, I think, what Larry is saying is that they're not going to allow the system to fail because they're going to create even more and more paper money uh, to bail out the banks. Like the, whatever the U.S. banking system owns, I think it's something like about $12 trillion. Um, they're going to bail them out. But who's going to bail out the consumer? Those about $13 trillion in the United States. Who's going to bail that cons- the consumer out? And you need that consumer to drive your economy. 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer-driven. So if you can't have a consumer that doesn't have money, you can't really have an economy that's going to fu- function effectively in the United States or elsewhere in the Western world. So um, eventually, you know, this frantic printing of paper, which we saw in John Law's day and in the Asignon, it all collapses because people don't trust it anymore. And they start to demand payment in specie, in gold and silver. They People say, I'm not, I don't want your paper. And this is what happened, you know, in, in the John Law's time. The, the farmers refused to pr- bring produce into Paris, and so French, the French people in Paris were starving because they didn't want to be paid in the paper money. So, and it became a crime to demand pay, payment in, in gold and silver. And I think you're going to start to see this move. And effectively, what I think we're going to have is, a, you know, a monetary system. This monetary system is blowing up worldwide, much as the monetary system in the last Kondratiev winter in the 1930s blew up. That whole system collapsed between 1931 and 33, and we're starting to see, and we forecast this collapse years ago, that this monetary system would collapse. But you're going to see a return to... Uh, a money backed by precious metals, and I particularly believe it will be backed by gold, and I suspect that the largest creditor nation will be working to effectively do that, which is China. And so China, you know, the largest creditor nation is always is always the nation that has the uh, reserve currency status. So, that you know, that's, that mantle is going to pass from the U.S., uh, albeit the U.S. doesn't want to see that happen, but it's going to pass from the U.S. to China, and I suspect that China is going to uh, back the renminbi with gold. Well, Larry, I don't think that you would necessarily believe that the U.S. dollar is going to survive, would you? Uh, no. As, well, for, first of all, what Ian's saying now is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to depreciate the currency down to zero. That's what, mm-hmm. that, this is what happened with John Lowe at the Francis Sinus. And uh, we're at the exact same page on this. Mm-hmm. That's not deflationary. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would mention that we've had John Williams, who you mentioned, Ian, uh, on this show in the past. And John's basic reason for being a hyperinflationist is that the dollar is going to collapse in value. What do you? How do you respond to that? Because you believe the dollar will also uh, well, collapse. Well, I with this for a second. 
But, but, but I think but the whole paper money system is going to collapse. Hold, hold on just a minute. Um, uh, go ahead, Larry, you, and then, then I'll just ask Ian the this question. Just point for a minute, because this is really what the discussion is. What, what Ian's suggesting now about the French experience, mm-hmm. about the John Law experience, this is what I'm saying. I mean, this is not deflationary. This is inflationary. Okay, and so I was asking, I was asking uh, Ian then, because... Um, that's John Williams' point, who is a hyperinflationist. Every year he writes his report on the hyperinflation, the, the coming hyperinflation. And, you know, John would agree with Ian on most of the points that he's made today, except he wouldn't, except John argues that the inflation will come about when the dollar finally collapses, when there's a loss of confidence in the dollar. Ian, you believe there will be a loss of confidence in the dollar and people are going to gold. I do, but, you know, I just want to answer Larry here. Sure. Uh, you know, yet during the period of the of the massive um, printing of money that uh, occurred in John Law's days, as as the scheme started to really collapse, and again in the Athenian period, uh, yeah, you had an inflation, um, but the inflation eventually people were turning to to gold and silver as money, and actually following the collapse, you had a massive deflation, and that's really what I'm forecasting is a massive collapse. And I also say that the last currency to collapse will be the dollar. The euro will probably be the first to fail, um, and that will happen probably with a Greek exit or a Spanish exit or whatever. But, uh, and then probably the pound will come under pressure. You've got perfect example of all this monetary collapse of the 1930s. I mean, just look at it. You had basically the small countries... Uh, collapsing first and moving out of the monetary system. And then, you know, speculators turn their attention to to uh, more uh, important countries, and particularly to Great Britain, because uh, and they forced Great Britain off gold in September 1930. And the U.S. was forced out of the monetary system in 1933. So the whole system collapsed. We didn't have a monetary system until 1944, after 1933, and world trade basically stopped and ceased to function uh, during that period until the Second World War began uh, because people didn't trust anyone else's currency. And so the U.S. Went, became very insular uh, and uh, basically went, uh, went, uh, looked after itself, went back into the United States and you know, had all the oil she needed. She had all the food she needed, so didn't need to trade with anybody else. So... Um, what I'm saying is the whole system here is going to collapse because of the overweight that we have in worldwide debt, something like $200 trillion worldwide, and that's going to bring the whole system down. And when that happens, you have massive deflation because no one has any purchasing power. But, Ian, can't the Fed just simply create enough money and pay Jay, off Jay, the people it chooses to Jay, pay off? Jay, stop for a second, please. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I see now we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to have the definitions in the beginning. Sure. So when we're talking about deflation, inflation, I'm talking about the loss of purchasing power of the dollar. And I think what I hear from Ian is that he agrees it's going away. Mm-hmm. And, it's going to re- and I think I hear him saying that it's going to be replaced by something in connection with gold. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Ian? I, I, I think we're saying the same thing. You That's agree, right, but, uh But in that process, before... The uh, new world monetary system evolved. Remember, when the collapse of the world monetary system between 1931 and 1933 occurred, 
we didn't have a new monetary system until Bretton Woods in '44, and so this system is collapsing. Well, actually, under the weight know, the of system, debt. Oh, oh, wait a second. The, the system. I mean, first of all, I don't. Uh, uh, I don't even want to bring this into. The, it just muddies up the water. But the system that we had after 1933 is that the dollar was redeemable in gold at $35 an ounce for foreign governments and foreign central banks. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. It muddies the water from what we're talking about going forward to, to, to rehash the old history. But in terms of after 1933, the dollar was still redeemable into gold by foreign governments and foreign central banks. It's not that there was no system. There was. I mean, it's, I mean, it's true you had to believe no monetary system. The monetary system had collapsed. But the topic of the, of the conversation today, as I understood it from Jay, is whether we're going to have inflation or deflation. But really, I think in terms of the dollar, but I think what I hear you now, and I think we're on the same page, is that the dollar is going away. Yeah, but before that happens, before the whole system just fades, we, you know, the, the, the whole economy, look, Larry, between, in, 19, in 2008, effectively, the whole our money system is a credit money system, and credit money essentially collapsed in 2008. And with that kind of collapse, if you have that collapse, it's going to be very deflationary. And I believe entirely. the whole credit degraded. money system is going to collapse. Yeah, it didn't collapse entirely. It was degraded. For sure, but it didn't. But people were still buying stuff. They didn't have mass starvation. They didn't have famine. Uh, it wasn't like in, in Hungary in 1946 or in Weimar Germany and Zimbabwe. Um, it still it still functioned after, after a fashion. I mean, yeah, people the, may have lost half the value really of their IRAs. There really was a credit money system in Zimbabwe. But meanwhile, Zimbabwe they still had something. A, you know, there's a paper money. It's a pure paper currency system. That's what third world currencies are. There's no effectively no debt money in those countries. So it's just, just the printing of paper money that creates uh, we the agree inflation. We, we here agree we're having basically, a, you know, if the credit system collapses as it almost did in 2008, the whole economy collapses. That's right. You can't travel you, because there's no gas or petrol uh, Taken to the gas stations, there's no food delivered to the grocery stores, and so That's on. Right. The whole That's system right. That's correct. collapses, and that we were very, very close, close in 2008. Well, we're overwhelmed happen. by debt, and I truly believe the system is on the point of collapse right now. I think that's right. We're on the same page on this, but that is not deflationary. That is that is hyperinflationary. Well, I I I think I could see it both ways. I uh, I, I think uh, if. Uh, if let's let's go back to 2008, uh, Larry and Ian, and let's suggest that you know that the interventionists didn't stop the uh, the floodgates, uh, the deflate because we had a credit implosion, did we not? Everything seized up, nobody could get paid. I mean, everything was uh, on the verge of collapse, and so those who say that the Fed and the policymakers had no choice but to bail out and to reliquify the system. In a way, I think they're right, even though philosophically I'm, I'm, hope, I'm personally very much opposed to it, as I guess, as I would believe both of you are. But let's suppose that had, they had not stepped in then. Let's, let's just look at the system. What would have happened? Would have we not seen collapsing prices, Larry? We saw the housing market prices decline until they were able to push money into the system to try to, st to stabilize them. I mean, housing prices would have gone down much further if everything seized up and nobody could 
do anything, what would happen to prices? I guess you'd start to have an economy that wouldn't be, it would be a barter economy that would evolve. Well, Jay, you have that right. In the event that they didn't bail the system, housing prices would have collapsed, and uh, you would have had um, a monetary, uh, I mean, if they hadn't traded money out of nothing, yes, prices would have collapsed. Mm-hmm. However, what I'm saying to you is that the way the system is today, it's rigged, so they will, n- will always have enough money. They will always put money into the system but didn't until they the money they... itself becomes worthless. But wouldn't so look the policymakers thought they had it fixed uh, so that wouldn't have happened before? And isn't it possible that it could get away from them? That is, some unforeseen event could trigger this thing with all of the derivatives and all of the leverage in the system that somehow, I mean, isn't this what they're guarding against, what they're deathly afraid of? Uh, that 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 Ian could be right, and this damn thing could just could just go over the over the edge. Well, the, the answer is it's going to go over the edge. I mean, that's unavoidable now. Well, but, I think you but, would but, see it flying off into space, and Ian would see it going over the edge. Uh, just just. Uh... Well, here's the thing, Jay. I owe you a lot of money, which uh-huh. I can't pay. One way is to default outright, in which case you end up with an empty bag. The other is to pay you off with money that's worthless, in which case you end up with an empty bag. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? And I'm saying to you is that the way the politics is set up, the way the system is set up, they're always going to pay you off with the worthless money. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, Ian. Yeah. Response. Well, <laughs> I, I'm saying that actually money in a deflation. I'm calling for this whole system to collapse into a deflationary spiral. That prices are going to collapse because demand collapses. In terms of dollars. What? Are you saying deflationary yeah, you in know, terms of dollars? Dollar is going to be the last currency standing, Larry, because it's the reserve yeah. currency. People, okay, but then, Ian, you think the dollar is going to go away, too. Why? Because it, people, why would it go away? If you have a deflationary environment, do you not have increasing purchasing power from the dollar? No, the and then, dollar will be the, the last case, currency standing because it's the reserve currency. So the Chinese who own, what, $1.3 trillion of debt aren't going to... Uh, basically collapse the dollar. They're, they're definitely working to weaken it at this stage by trying to do their trading with trading partners in their, their own currencies and so on. But the dollar will be the last to collapse, and the euro probably the first, and then the pound and so on. And eventually the, the attention will be turned on to the dollar, much as it was in the monetary crisis of the 30s. This is what I think. And when that happens, even the dollar... The mighty, the dollar was mighty in the 30s. U.S. had lots of gold back in the dollars, particularly when she confiscated all that gold. Gold flowed back to the U.S. Uh, from foreign countries and so on. The U.S. was the world's largest creditor nation by a long shot in the 30s, and yet even the U.S. was ultimately forced off the system. So I think that the system is collapsing worldwide, but the U.S. will be the last currency to collapse. And everyone will have it, you know, be aware that this is going to happen because the pound will go, the euro will go, and um, Germany will probably go back to the Deutschmark. But the whole system, this is what I'm seeing, is a collapse. And so demand will collapse. People will start to hoard gold and silver and paper money. Yeah, we have to go uh, in about a minute. We have to go to break, and I'm asking if if both of you could come back for a few minutes, uh, ten minutes or so, on the other side of the break. Could could both of you come back? Sure. Um, yes. I can. Uh, can you, Larry, as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, 
I, I know that one of the things Ian you had mentioned in discussing, you know, one of the points you made to Larry was that um, was that you know you can bail out the rich bankers, you can bail out those institutions that are too big to fail, but what about that massive middle class? That seventy percent of demand, which some people they throw that number out there. I don't know how accurate it is, but the middle class is getting squeezed. I'm sure both of you would agree on that. Um, Yes, but but you know I've had Dr. Paul, Ron Paul, on the show, and I made that point to him, and I made I said I could see hyperinflation if you showered the the masses with money, and Ron said, well, of course, and that's what we can do. We have the systems in place to channel the money to the masses, and so you know when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to ask both of you if you think that will happen, and uh, you know will it take a threat of revolution? to loosen the, the purse strings of the bankers to allow the people to have their, their crumbs from the table so they don't, uh, so they don't uh, you know, throw, you know, uh, create a, a massive revolution. Uh, just food for thought. When we come back after the break, I'd like to uh, pick up there and then much more to talk to both of you about on this very, very fascinating and I think important topic. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian Gordon and Larry Parks. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. We're fortunate to have Ian Gordon and Larry Parks with us for another few minutes. Uh, and uh, when we want to break, uh, one of the things, one of the questions that I wanted to get to uh, relates back to a discussion I had with Dr. Ron Paul when he's been on this show. I mentioned uh, to, to uh, Congressman Paul 
that uh, you know I could see hyperinflation if you could get the money to the masses. I mean, this goes to Ian Gordon's point a little while ago when Ian was suggesting to Larry that, yeah, the government can bail out the big banks, they can bail out you know a certain portion of the economy, but what about the masses? What about the middle class, uh, the consumers that spend seventy percent or are supposed to be? about 70% of the economy. And when I brought that up with with, uh, Dr. Paul in the past, he said, yes, but we have the systems in place now to do that. And I think back to Katrina, the Katrina disaster where they just, everybody lined up for, uh, you know, for $3,000 and claimed, if they claimed they lived in the city. Uh, Or or what about more recent bailouts, of course, where uh, tax rebates have been funneled to the masses. So I want to ask Larry, maybe starting with you, uh, do you see this as, as the way it's going to play out? And, and, and why would the bankers, why would the bankers want to see the masses, uh, you know, have, have some crumbs off the table? I mean, after all, we've seen the big rich bankers keep their, keep their, their lush, uh, bonuses basically through this after the taxpayers have bailed them out. But Larry, do you see this as part of the way, part of the inflationary scenario that you see is that the masses will get huge amounts of transfer payments? from money that's created out of thin air? Well, it's not just the transfer payments. And and Ian really uh, uh, hit the nail on the head with this when he said there's no debt markets in these uh, emerging countries. Uh So in order to have debt markets, people have to be willing to save the money. Mm -hmm. And part of the human condition is that we all have to save for a time when we can't work. Mm -hmm. However, if people don't have confidence that the money will retain purchasing power, they don't save it which is what you have in Africa and whatnot. And so in the event that people lose confidence in the money, all the money that's so-called saved, put away and whatnot, uh, and this really uh, speaks to the issue of one of your uh, call-ins on, on the velocity of money, people want to get rid of it. And why save something that could become easily worthless or is becoming worthless very quickly? And then you have this blow-off. And as far as the response from the government is concerned, uh, first, you have coupons, ration coupons, and whatnot. And as Ian suggests, I think correctly, is that they have to reform the monetary system. Will there be a roll for gold? That's traditionally what's happened. So in, after the Russian Revolution in 1923, when they had hyperinflation and Lenin made a, uh, a gold ruble. Um, but I can, there is no question in my mind, and I think Ian has this right, is that uh, the, all the debt has to collapse. It cannot, it cannot and will not be paid. Right, but then uh, will the government um, at some point try to send masses amount of money to the to the masses of people? No, they'll send ration coupons. Yeah, and then what happens? At some point, you have to have a new monetary system, and you'll, right. you'll have a regime change. Who knows what that new regime change will be? And part of the efforts that we have in my organization, uh, you didn't give the name, it's the Foundation for Advancement of Monetary Education, is that what we want is a transition. And the way to get that transition is to pass the legislation that Ron Paul has suggested. That's the current, uh, Competition and Currency Act. And what that does is get rid of legal tender. It will allow people to start using a gold clause again, which supposedly they're allowed now. But you want to get, you want to be able to somehow drift away from the irredeemable paper ticket money so there's an alternate currency in place at the time that it collapses. Otherwise, it's like Hank Paulson threatened the Congress with his top legislation. Uh, you'll have martial law. We have had uh, Louis Lehrman on this show, and he's working hard to uh, to reestablish some sort of a gold system. 
as is Ron Paul. And I think, Larry, you, not that long ago, on your own TV show, interviewed uh, Steve Forbes, did you not? We did. And, and do you see, Larry, do you see a movement among some of, uh, some of the you know, fairly important people in our, in our society, like Louis Lehrman, Ron Paul, uh, Steve Forbes, as maybe the beginnings of some move towards a gold-backed system? It is very mooted. However, some of the good things that have happened lately is that is the uh, set of lectures that Bernanke gave uh, down at Princeton, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, stuff that Warren Buffett came out with where he said gold is useless. Uh, the fact that they're talking about it gives us an opportunity to answer it in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Whereas a couple of years ago, there was no discussion at all. It was just, uh, 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 how shall I say, uh, they would uh, uh, denigrate uh, anybody who talked about gold as being some kind of kook or whatnot. So today, there is discussion. And there are op-eds appearing in the mainstream media uh, talking on this issue. Not the way I would like. However, it is coming on. As far as important people are concerned, uh, the key movers today are still not doing anything about it. Although there's, there's mentioned that there's something about gold in the uh, Republican uh, Democratic plat- uh, presidential platform. Right. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't uh, ask you again, Larry, and then Ian, uh, for how our listeners can avail themselves to the information that you make available. Larry, I think your website is fame.org. Is that it? Uh, it is. But if people send me an email, Larry at LarryParks.com, I will send them uh, my congressional testimony, a copy of uh, Fiat Money Inflation in France, and a copy of a book that I wrote a few years ago um, uh, really uh, explaining uh, Alan Greenspan's view of the monetary system. And Greenspan did an enormous service with that. So that's Larry at LarryParks.com. And I'll be happy to mail these things to uh, anybody who sends me an email. Excellent. That's really good. And, Ian, your your website as well. Tell our listeners. Uh, longwavegroup.com. Longwavegroup.com. And you have a service there where you make available, uh, I think, some in your investment ideas uh, to people as well. Right. But there's a lot of free stuff on your website as well. So people should well, go okay, there. It's gonna be, I'm going to make it a free website anyway, January 1. So. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, that's even better. So, uh uh, I know you work extremely hard. You're a prolific reader. You you think a lot about these issues. That's why both of you guys are on this show. I think you both make uh, a very, very good point, uh, that you make very good points for the side uh, that you come down on on this, on this uh, very important issue. But as to this issue, Ian, uh, that Ron Paul raised, and, you know, he's suggesting that, well, ultimately the government will get the money in the hands of the people who spend it. It won't be just the rich guys at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan who may be buying gold now and buying real estate in foreign countries and uh, amassing treasures at the expense of the taxpayers, but the taxpayers themselves will be giving, uh, will be given a huge amount of of money um, created out of nothing. And your response to that, because Ron Paul is definitely an inflationist. He, he would come down on Larry's side on this. Your response to that? Well, I don't think really the government cares. You know, this sounds, this sounds bad, but I don't think the government really cares about the people. I mean, they care about the banks. The banks uh, have, uh, have huge issues. And don't forget that the Federal Reserve is owned by the banks, and so the banks have these huge mon- uh, debt issues, and they have the, um, so I think the government is mostly interested in, in basically bailing out uh, the U.S. banking system. We already see, have seen that they did that in 2008, but they're probably going to have to do it again when this whole system starts to 
collapse. And I don't think the people will, uh, the American people will figure into, into their response uh, to having to bail out a, a collapsing uh, banking system in the United States. Let me uh, ask uh, both of you a question about velocity. Larry, you talked about it briefly. You mentioned it. Uh, one of our listeners uh, sent us an email and asked uh, for your comments on, on the velocity of money. I mean, the bank, uh, the Federal Reserve has pumped money into the banks. We know that there's uh, reserves on the bank balance sheets, uh, huge reserves, much as there was in the 1930s. It's not getting lent out to any great extent. Uh, maybe the speculators and the hedge funds have some access to that money. They're bidding up the price of commodities, perhaps. But is, there could be, and Larry, you sort of talked about this notion of why would people hold on to the money? After all, you get nothing for it. I mean, we have inflation rate. You can, you know, 3, 4, 5, 6% depends on how you count it. Uh, it it's, it's much higher, I believe, than the government claims it is. But um, when, what would cause people, I mean, it seems to me, as Larry, you said, it can change almost, you know, overnight. You can see a massive change in attitudes of the people. What Jay, about the current Jay, velocity? Sorry, Larry, Jay. Yes. Could you please ask me that question first, only because I'm getting beeps in my phone, which suggests that it's running. Oh, okay, go ahead. Comment on that then. Uh, you're going to be, okay, go ahead, Ian. Okay. Um, I really think that when, you know, things really get uh, out of hand, you're not you're going to see a, a, a massive decrease in the money supply. You've effectively seen the money supply decreasing as money's been coming out of the system anyway. You know, as, a, as I've said to you many times, most of the money in, uh, West, in the Western world is debt money, and that debt money is now coming out. It's being taken out of the system. So the money supply effectively has been decreasing I think I said to you earlier in the show that between 2008 and 2010, the money supply actually dropped by 25% from a positive uh, tw- about 20% to a negative about 12, uh, sorry, a positive 25% to a negative 10% or something like this. Anyway, but it dropped about 25%. I have the chart. Here You're talking about them. money growth. So yeah, what happens is supply. that when things get really difficult, people start to hoard money. They start, they're scared, so they start to bury the money under the mattress. They take it out of the banking system because they don't trust the banks. This is what you're seeing in places like Greece and Spain. And they also start to use the money and purchase the precious metals. So, because they trust the precious metals as the money of last resort. So, you know, essentially, I don't see an increase in the money supply occurring here. If anything, I see a, a big decrease. Well, again, I think, Larry, you mentioned money supply is very difficult to define, and so it would depend, I, I suppose, uh, on, on Ian's definition of that. But, but what is your response? Uh, Larry, you talked about this velocity issue. Ian is suggesting velocity is likely to decrease, as, it, as he's suggesting it is in Greece. As people hang on, uh, not sure how they're going to be able to make the ends meet, and so, you know, they stop spending lavishly and they start to hold on, hoard their money. That is a, uh, a velocity decrease, which I believe would be uh, have a downward effect on prices, all other things being equal, would it not, Larry? Well, first of all, when, when Ian talks about the decrease, he's talking about the decrease in the increase, not the decrease in the level. Okay. All right. So a decrease in, okay, so right. a decrease in, in the rate in, of in money. The case, in the case of countries like Greece, you bet they're worried. They think they believe that the um, uh, that Greece is going to default on its debt, and they're going to come out with the drachmas, and so they want to get the euros out of, out of the banks. I mean, that makes perfect sense. 
But that's not the situation that we have here in America. And the guy who had the best metaphor on this, I think, is uh, Jim Rickards. And in his book, he says, uh, says you don't know which snowflake is going to cause the avalanche. Yeah. So, and it's not a matter of decreasing the money supply or decreasing the rate of the increase in money supply. You know, if you use one measure of money supply, which is the M3 money supply, which is not so-called broad money supply, which they don't publish any longer. They stopped in March of 2006. You go back to 1946, the M3 was roughly $150 billion. Today, it's roughly something north of $14 trillion. It's already out there. So in the event that people lose confidence in the ongoing purchasing power of the money, it doesn't matter whether they put more money and take a little money out or somebody defaults. It's all there. And a lot of it's being saved. And again, it's part of the human condition that people have to save because there always comes a time when you cannot work anymore, either through old age or disability or whatever. You have to save. And um, when people get get to the point where they realize that their savings is melting away, uh, you're going to see a rush to the exits. And that can happen over a weekend. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I have to ask you, I guess I'll, I'll direct the question to you first, Ian, because your batteries may be running, running out on your phone there. But what, um, assuming that you're right and we're heading into a deflationary depression, tell our listeners how they should invest their money. Now, everybody's not the same, but they should be buying gold. I know you're going to tell them that. What else? Uh, just gold and gold, Jay. Uh, gold and what? And gold stocks. And gold stocks. Uh, yeah, Larry, hundred percent, you... you know, for my, for myself, and for when I was a stockbroker, my clients, since two thousand, one hundred percent invested in gold and gold stocks. Uh, simply knowing that you know we were going into uh, this deflationary depression, you know, which uh, I could read from my cycle work, and knowing that that would put tremendous pressure on the banking system. Uh, because debt would eventually overwhelm it. So we've been there since gold was at 250, and we still want to be there because we think gold is going to do exceptionally well in this in this coming collapse. Okay, Larry. Uh, with the time remaining, we have. You're assuming you're right. The hyperinflation. I know that you. I know that you believe you need you need to own gold. You and Ian agree on that, and that's the most important thing to agree on. But. Um, what uh, what is the prospects? What are the prospects in your view, um, Larry, that gold will be confiscated again? I think you believe that's not likely. Well, first of all, um, you're right about the gold. However, in particular, I think people should get U.S. gold eagles because that is the best um, protection against counterfeits. And also, in terms of uh, confiscating it, I think the U.S. coinage will be the last stuff confiscated in the event that they do that. Hmm. One of the uh, risks that we have now is that very few people own any gold. And so who's to object, you know, in the event that the politicians decide to confiscate gold? Who's going to complain about that? Um, But again, I think people should get uh, U.S. gold eagles. As to gold stocks, uh, unless somebody is knowledgeable, I would say stay away from stocks. One way to get knowledgeable is to read kind of publications that you publish, Jay. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, and you're up the learning curve. I think people can definitely benefit uh, from your publication. Well, and I might also uh, put a plug in for Ian as well. He's uh, been in this industry, has been a lender to uh, or an investment banker to the uh, to the gold mining sector for a long time, and Ian also provides a lot of information along those lines as well, for sure. Uh, and so, Ian, your your notion of confiscation, 
you think it's likely? Well, Jay, I don't trust government, and I don't trust the fact that the U.S. has the goal that she purports to own, so um, it might very well uh, be a part of the uh, the ultimate policy of the U.S., particularly if the world does start towards a a gold monetary a gold a monetary system backed by gold, which I believe will be initiated in China. Yeah, you you believe that that would be forced on the U.S. policymakers, perhaps by China, Russia, to possibly play a role there. Well, I, I'm just convinced that the China is the world's largest credit nation. She's amassing huge amounts of gold. The amount of gold that's going through Hong Kong into China, China is the largest world uh, gold mining producer. None of that gold is allowed to leave the country. So there's a massive amount of gold going into China. She's not going to tell you how much she's got to back the renminbi, but I think when the day comes, she's going to come out and say, look, the renminbi is gold back. This is how much gold we have, and it would force the rest of the world to follow suit. Well, thank you. Uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much, Larry uh, Parks and Ian Gordon, for sharing your views, divergent views in many cases and, and many cases not so divergent. But I think you both uh, provided a great service to our listeners. And, again, uh, you want to go to the Long Wave Analyst. Is that it, Ian? Do the I have Long Wave right? Group, Jay. I'm sorry, the Long Wave Group for Ian Gordon. Uh, and uh, for Larry Parks, it's uh, fame.org. And the uh, email again, Larry? It's uh, Larry at LarryParks.com. That's Larry easy. at LarryParks.com. Thank you, both of you, so much for coming on the show. Uh, and we'll look to talk to you both again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll have some closing thoughts on today's show, and I'll talk to you about next week's guest in just a moment after the break. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He's available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network 
the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. We've just got a, a minute or so left here to talk about, uh, oh, to sum up what uh, the discussions that, that we've had today. I uh, think Larry Parks was suggesting that mining, uh, investing in ex- exploration companies uh, and mining companies, especially exploration companies, is a very risky endeavor, and I agree wholeheartedly with him. And uh, and I would suggest that you should read uh, newsletters. I, Of course, I'm going to suggest you read my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. There's many others, too. We've had uh, Brent Cook on this show. Next, we're going to have Mickey Falp, a uh, geologist who, who does some very good work. Uh, he has some great ideas as well. Uh, and so there are others out there that uh, have specialized and spent a great deal of time and energy learning to know about the risks inherent in the gold mining sector. I would uh, just like to highlight, though, uh, Sandstorm, who we talked to, uh, Sandstorm Gold, uh, that company's CFO, at the start of today's show in the first half hour. I think Sandstorm, it was my number one pick this year for a reason. Sandstorm uh, has a growing cash flows. They're buying their gold at, uh, at a locked-in price for the life of a mining project, and they own a bunch of different projects that have growth prospects and more of them coming online. So I'm looking for that company to grow uh, its earnings uh, very rapidly. Uh, the, uh, another very good way to invest in the gold mining sector, if you don't have the time to uh, to spend uh, on individual projects and understanding those projects, is to buy the project generator model. And with respect to that, we have three of our sponsors are project generators, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, and Riverside Resources. All three of those companies uh, have employ what is known as the project generator model. That is, they use other people's money to uh, put expensive, high-risk holes in the ground to explore and to develop projects. And uh, in that way, the, those three companies avoid what I think is the biggest risk inherent with the junior uh, mining sector, and that is uh, one of, uh, of continued share issuance and dilution of people who get into these stories early. On the other hand, you uh, you never get something for nothing, and the project generators usually use their intellectual, well, they use their intellectual pro, uh, capital uh, to go out and stake promising properties, and then they uh, and then they require, uh, they have to give up a portion of their project. Well, my engineer is telling me I am out of time, so that's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. We will have... Uh, Mickey Falp, and, and, and another guest I expect next week. So I look forward to talking to you again next week. Goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.